Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, 2011 was probably uh, one of the, if you looked in the history, the archives of the Verweil family, 2011, a lot of great, marvelous things happened. I don't know what was so special about 2011, but it was. Uh, In May 2011, that was the first year that I graduated from what I describe as the humbling gauntlet of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, I just learned so much about what I need to learn. I learned so much about what I don't know at Dallas Seminary. It was a five-year journey that Brandy went through with me. It was a family journey. Um, It was a great time for us to move move on through that. In um, September, August, excuse me, getting my kids confused, in August of 2011, we welcomed our toe-headed, blonde-haired kid, Ethan James, into the world. We had a baby that year. We went into our first ministry job that year. I was doing a, a campus ministry. Uh, here in Oklahoma. That was just a, an awesome opportunity for us to, to grow into. Bought my first truck in 2011, my first and only truck I've ever had. It was a black Ford F-150 XLT package. Didn't deck it out too bad, but man, it was paid for. And we traded in the world to get that truck. Thought we might have been going up to Alaska Bible College, actually, so we bought a 4 by 4 vehicle uh, to get us up there. And then we had these babies, and, and Brandy would just load the baby carrier from the stroller into the truck. Moms, if any of you guys have done that with babies, by the time they get about 9, 12 months, it gets a little tough to get them up there. And so we did all that stuff. It was 2011 was just a really great year. And, and of all of those things that I just mentioned, there's, there's one thing that stood out about 2011 that's better than the rest of them. All right, so what I want you to do is hold your left hand out in front of you just like this, and I want to look at the shape of your left hand, all right? From about, from the bottom of your wrist up, looks like the great state of Wisconsin, all right? Now down at your left thumb, at the base of your left thumb right there, that's the city of Milwaukee, and here's what you need to know about Milwaukee. Milwaukee is the city of uh, breweries, beer, and brats, Okay? Also, the place where I grew up, Milwaukee. So that's all you need to know about Milwaukee. If you go north, just about two and a half hours, you'll come up to this crevice between your thumb and your first finger right there, your next finger. That right there is known as the great city of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Green Bay is not known for its beer or its brats. It's actually known for its football team, the Green Bay Packers, the greatest team on the planet. Uh, Green Bay... (laughs) Green Bay Packers just surpassed the Chicago Bears for the most winning franchise in NFL history. We got that going for us. Uh, We won Super Bowls before there were Super Bowls. Uh, Vince Lombardi was the coach. You guys know the Super Bowl trophy is named after the great coach for the Green Bay Packers, the Lombardi Trophy. Whoever wins the Super Bowl, I don't care if it's Tom Brady, Tampa Bay, Patriots, they're thinking about the Packers when they win it because it's named after the Packer coach. Uh, most winning franchise. They've won all kinds of games. Uh, again, you know who's not even in the top 10 for most winning franchise in the NFL? The Dallas Cowboys. All right? They didn't even make it to the top 10. So America's team? I, I don't think so. All right? We're owned by the fans. All this to say, in 2011, something miraculous happened. 
And I'll, I'll never, ever forget the day. It was January 23rd. We just came off of a, a 10 and 6 season, which is just okay. But it was good enough to get into the wild card playoffs. We had uh, Aaron Rodgers, it was three years after Brett Favre. Brett Favre, we give all of our washed up players to the Minnesota Vikings. And so, <laughs> so he was playing for Minnesota at that point in time. Aaron Rodgers, three years under center. He goes, and, and despite the fact every single playoff game, wild card game, on the road against Philly, Derek, Rachel, where are you? Sorry, we beat your Eagles that year. All right. We went, on to, uh, we went on to play away games for the NFC division title, for the NFC conference championship, and it was January 23rd, 2011. It was a game against the Chicago Bears at Soldier Field in Chicago. It was 20 degrees at kickoff time. This had all the, th all the makeup of a historical championship game that would be remembered forever in the life of Jared Verweil, all right? And so the Packers pulled through earlier in the season. The Chicago Bears beat them. The first game of the season, they beat them. They came back and they played them twice. And in the championship for the, to go to the Super Bowl, here they are playing the Chicago Bears again. And they win the game. Of all people, nobody expected the wild card team, Green Bay Packers, to be in the Super Bowl. They made it to the Super Bowl. They went on to beat Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And forget about the Minnesota Vikings and the Chicago Bears and all these guys. We won the Super Bowl that year. It was an amazing, amazing year. And after that game on December 23rd, or January 23rd, I get a call from my best friend in high school. And he had moved out to Los Angeles, California. He was working on a construction crew out there. And he calls me five minutes after the game. He says, Jared, can you believe this? I got to tell you something. My best friend's name is Adam Kaufman. And this guy is so dedicated to the Green Bay Packers, he got on the season ticket waiting list in eighth grade. He's projected to get season tickets when he is 92 years old. <laughs> you know why? Because it's for the Green Bay Packers. And it takes that long to get season tickets to the Green Bay Packers. They've been sold out forever. Um, Adam calls me, says, Jared, do you realize what just happened? I said, man, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm kind of writing a thesis right now, but yeah, I watched the Packers. I'm right there with you. He said, Jared, don't you live in Dallas? I said, yeah, why? What, what's the big deal about living in Dallas? He said, do you know where they're playing the Super Bowl this year? Jerry just built this big dome in Arlington, Texas. They're playing the Super Bowl in Dallas, Texas. I said, I'm getting us tickets to the Super Bowl. I said, Adam, you get tickets to the Super Bowl, come on over here, you can stay as long as you want. We'll put you up and we'll go to that game. So he hangs up the phone, puts in his order, Ticketmaster, whatever it was, 750 smacks per ticket. We were convinced, exactly, he's like, what are you gonna do, pay your mortgage or get a ticket to a game? Like, all right, man, deep breaths here. We were convinced, it, just, it wasn't just the Super Bowl. Right, if we were true Packer fans, in order to be completely fulfilled, we needed the added emotional input of being at that game. It wasn't just that my buddy was coming to Dallas to watch the game with me. We needed the added memory of going to that game. This is the, the team that we cheered for, that we, we lasted the Don Mikowski, Magic Man Mikowski, doldrum errors era 
of just terrible Green Bay Packers. We made it through that. We were at the Super Bowl again. We, it just wasn't that we were living in, in Dallas. We needed the experience of being at that game. And, and so he gets these tickets, and two days later, I get a call from Adam Kaufman. And it absolutely crushed both of us. He said, Jared, the tickets that I got online were a complete and total scam. I've traded in my airline tickets. I've, sold, I've got rid of the tickets. I got my money back. And just the exact same way that we felt about that game, I know it's it's poor, pitiful me, right? Terrible experience. Just how I felt about that game. Wanted an added experience, added emotion, added memory to enter into the fullness of that moment. When you read the book of Colossians, here's what's happening. The false teachers came in who were trying to convince the believers in Colossae that they needed more than Jesus. They needed an added experience onto Jesus. They needed more of an emotional appeal, an emotional tie to Jesus. They needed to add some laws to Jesus. They needed to add self-discipline to Jesus. They needed to add rules, efforts, everything that they could to Jesus in order to experience the full benefit of Christianity and to be fulfilled in their life. And here's what's going to happen. In Colossians 2, 16 through 23, the Apostle Paul will say, you don't need to add anything to Christ. Christ is enough for you. He's enough for you to get into the Christian life, to live the Christian life, to complete the Christian life, and to be with him in glory. You don't have to focus on all of these other extracurriculars. Just focus, live, know, grow deeper with Christ. And so we're going to see three things in these verses as we look at the end of Colossians chapter 2. Number one, do not let anyone condemn you with legalism in addition to Christ. The Apostle Paul will also say, number two, do not let anyone criticize you with mysticism. You don't need all these extra experiences or uh, mystical elements added to your Christian life in order to be fulfilled and complete. You just need Jesus. Number three, he said, do not let anyone convince you into individualism and separating yourself apart from others based on your experiences. And everything ultimately goes back to, I want you to, before we look at these verses, skip back up to Colossians 2, verse 8. Everything is going back to this verse. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so Spurgeon has this great quote. He says this, If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. If Christ be anything, he must be everything. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in Colossians. Let's look at our our outline, look at our text this morning. Do not let anyone condemn you with legalism in the Christian life. Do not let anyone condemn, condemn you with legalism. Look down at verse 16. I'm going to read verse 16 and 17. You know, there's a slide that crept in there, excuse me, on that one. Do not let anyone condemn you with legalism. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come. Apostle Paul says the substance belongs to Christ. 
Now, Colossians 2 provides the most information in this letter on exactly the content of what these false teachers were trying to bring to Colossae against the truth of the gospel and against the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. And it's really difficult to wrestle with this because in this small little letter, in this epistle, Paul never specifically mentions the names of these false teachers. We don't know who they are. Number two, he never specifically labels their teaching either. It was probably a, a conglomeration of synchristic thoughts that existed in the first century around and in that area of Colossae at that time. But we know for sure that one thing these false teachers wanted to do was to sprinkle in elements of Old Testament Judaism into a synchristic system of living the Christian life. There were still some who wanted to add the law to the gospel. As the gospel was penetrating hearts in this area, this is primarily Gentiles who were converted to Christianity, and they were coming into what was historically rooted as an Old Testament uh, Hebrew Judaistic faith that was carried over to Jesus into the New Testament. Even though Paul said in Galatians, that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. Even though Galatians chapter 10 talks about Christ as the end of the law for all of those who are righteous in Christ, you don't need the gospel plus the law to live a fulfilled, joyful, satisfying Christian life that pleases the Lord. And the first thing to notice about this warning that we're receiving, chapter 2 at the end, is it's a chapter of warnings. And here's the first thing that we'll want you to notice. Paul's warning against the false teachers is universal. It's universal in its scope. What I mean by that is that Paul doesn't say, do not let influential teachers judge you with the law. He doesn't say, do not let these great charismatic synagogue leaders and rabbis convince you of going into the law. He doesn't say, let these, do not let these powerful cultural brokers influence you into the law. Paul universally applies this to anyone and everyone. He says, do not let anyone, no one, is what the ESV says. Paul's command is general and universal to anyone and everyone who might add the law to the Christian life. You don't need it. He says, focus instead on Christ. And Paul lists some legal items from the Old, Test Old Testament systematically here. He goes from the bigger festivals that happened less frequently to the smaller things that happened more frequently. Look at verse 16. You're going to see three things. He talks about with regard to festival, number one, to new moon, number two, and to Sabbaths, number three. The Old Testament described three main religious festivals for the people of Israel. They were go to go and pilgrimage to Jerusalem to the capital city in order to have these feasts and these celebrations with their family three times specifically during the year. Those three festivals were Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, and Booths, Tabernacles. Um, the New Moons speaks of not three festivals during the year, but it speaks of a festival every single month. There was a New Moon festival prescribed by the Old Testament where the Israelites would slow down, worship the Lord on a Sabbath basis monthly. Then he talks about Sabbaths that happened weekly. You stopped everything you did. You did no work on the Sabbath. For on the Sabbath day, God created the world, and on the seventh day, he rested. All right, so you've got annual festivals, you've got monthly festivals, you've got weekly festivals in regard to these legal regulations. Paul is saying some really powerful things. 
that apply, not just for these first century audience that he's writing to, but also for us today as Christians. Christ is more than just going through the motions and attending the services of a church might offer on a weekly or monthly or holiday basis. Relationships trump ritual in the Christian life. When Christ is enough for you, relationships trump rituals. Christianity is not by externals. It's not by our performance and doing this or doing that or staying away from this or staying away from that. All those things in the law, the sacrifices, the temple, the priests, the clothing, all the prescriptions that were laid out for us from the Old Testament, all the way through it, all of those things both point us to and are fulfilled in Christ. They are a shadow, but Christ is the substance. He is what they point to. And so if the temptation is there to go backwards into the law, don't do that, the Apostle Paul says. He says, keep your eyes forward, keep going forward, and think about Christ. S. Lewis Johnson was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's got a really good quote on legalism. I want to share it with you. He said, one of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. He said one of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism, and every day it's the exact same. He says legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. Nothing is left but cramped, sober, dull, listless profession. The truth is betrayed. The glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy. And so here's what Paul says. Let no one pass judgment on you. And that command in verse 16 is parallel to the verse 8 that we started with. If you go back to verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive. The Greek concept of, of slavery is there, or taking a prisoner of war is there. Let no one enslave you to the law. Let no one imprison you or take you off from the spoils of war with the law. Legalism is slavery, and legalists will do everything they can to keep you chained to their rules, their regulations, their performances, and their external behavior. The Apostle Paul has given us good, gospel-centered, Christ-centered math here, and here's what he says. He says, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Right, Christian? Jesus plus nothing is everything. Do not let anyone condemn you or pass judgment on you with legalism. Number two in the Christian life. Do not let anyone criticize you with mysticism. Do not let anyone criticize you with mysticism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. If you're not reading from the ESV there, you might have a, a very different translation, all right? And we're going to talk a little bit about some of those things, so just bear with me here. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, speaking of Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Okay, so Paul started with a warning. He said, do not let anyone judge you, verse 16. He continues with another warning. ESV says, do not let anyone disqualify you, right? Do not let anyone um, 
verse 18, disqualify you, it's insisting on asceticism. So structurally, here's how everything is put together. In verse 16, you've got a negative command, do not let anyone pass judgment. Verse 17, now he brings us back to Christ. Verse 18, you've got another negative command, what not to do. And then verse 19, he brings it again back to Christ. Negative command, Christ. Negative command, Christ. The false teachers in Colossians were trying to distract believers with ideas, philosophies, emotions, experiences. And Paul keeps telling the believers to focus your attention back on Christ. He continues to pull us back away from the distractions of these teachers, back to the center where we need to be focused on Christ. And listen, any athlete will tell you how important it is to be focused and mentally disciplined on the task at hand. In the Christian sense, it's the person at hand. It's Jesus. If you're playing golf, anybody knows. It's not the last shot you hit. You think about the next shot every single time. You've got to be so mentally tough and focused to think about the next thing and what's ahead of you. If you're a quarterback in the NFL and you just throw an interception, you've got to block that out of a short memory and think about the next snap that you're going to take. Be focused and mentally disciplined. I like what one man says in, in his definition of, of stress, is when everything has the same priority. One really good definition of stress is when everything in your life has the exact same priority. Do you struggle with worry? Are you anxious in your life at times? To be anxious and to struggle with worry, it literally means to be divided. It means to be distracted from something else that should be the main priority. And so as an under-shepherd, here's what the Apostle Paul does. He continues to move us past all of these distractions and all these barriers, and he points us to the pastures in the waters of Jesus. He brings us over and over again to find rest, fulfillment, life in Jesus. Again, depending on your translation here, you're going to have some, some different things starting in, in verse 18. Verse 18, ESV, let no one disqualify you. New King James Version, let no one cheat you of your reward. The New American Standard says, let no one defraud you. This is the only use of that verb in all of the New Testament, and there's very little use of that verb in Koine Greek at this time outside of the Bible. Literally, if you read this kind of an, a wooden translation, it would say something like this, let no one decide against you as an umpire. I have no doubt that there are some people here today who really believe that you are qualified by God based on what you are doing today in your Christian life. I have no doubt that there are some people today who are so confused on the gospel that they come and they do things, the right things, but all for the wrong reasons, right? And they think they're qualified before the Almighty God by doing something, by following some rule, by adding something to Christ. Some of you are relying on the gospel plus your discipline. Some of you are relying on the gospel plus this vision you had. Some of you are relying on Jesus plus this emotional experience you had in 2011, January 23rd. None of that is the gospel. None of it. The clear, centralized message of the gospel is Jesus. It's about him and what he did. It's not about us and what we do for him. Some of us really think that we are qualified in the Christian life once we have all of the sins that we've ever committed confessed. 
that maybe we were right with God at one point in time, but now it's on us to live our life in the right way after we become believers. Otherwise, we're not going to be qualified before the Father. Listen, the, the truth of the gospel is there is one thing and one thing alone that qualifies you to eternal life to stand before an all-holy, almighty God. And that one thing is not you. That one thing is Jesus. It's his death and his shed blood on Calvary that qualifies you to stand before the Father, to have a righteousness that is not your own. Look at, look at what Paul lists here in these verses. The first thing he mentions uh, is asceticism. He talks about four things. He talks about asceticism, the worship of angels. He talks about visions. And he talks about a sensuous or, or a worldly mind. Right? And asceticism was a first century practice of, of extreme self-discipline. These were the Stoics, the Epicureans of Paul's time. They were such extreme self-discipline that they could in, avoid indulgence at all costs. Desire was a terrible thing in the first century. Our world is, is completely reversed on this now. The early Greeks would have said, check your desires, question your desires. Don't give in to your desires because they might lead, it, lead to infatuation, they might lead to indulgence of your desires, and before long you're gonna have huge issues in your life. Now, in our time, we say, tap into your desires. If you want it, go get it. If you desire it, go have it. It's yours. Be happy, be fulfilled by listening and pursuing your emotional desires. Asceticism was completely different. All right, but there's two main interpretations to what this means. First, with asceticism, is, is really the face value, kind of just word-for-word -word translation. You would read something like this, let no one delight in false humility. Some of your translations will say something like false humility in there. And the idea here is faking that God is truly doing something, sincerely doing something in your life and in your heart, but really the focus is all on you. Right? This is the person who, with his social media post, is just saying, hey guys, pray for me this morning. I have, I've fasted, I've been praying for an entire week, I've been reading these verses over and over again, and, and I'm still really struggling with this thing. And I want you to know how much I'm struggling with this thing. In fact, I'm just going to tell you more and more about how I've been fasting for this many days, I've been praying this long and this many hours, I'm asking for this thing and that thing. And, and listen, there's going to be people in your life really close people that you're accountable to, that you're close to, that you are going to share those things with, but you don't have to placate it and announce it to the world because your attention is really not drawn to Jesus in those instances. It's really drawn to your discipline, your practices. I memorized this scripture. I prayed this long. I've been fasting this many days, and it becomes more about you than it becomes about Christ. And Christianity is all about Christ. C.S. Lewis reminds us, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? And so you can have a false humility that is really just tapping into a self-centered, I need people to notice me, I need people to recognize me. And at the end of the day, it's not about Christ at all because you're still thinking about yourself. Other interpretations on asceticism might refer to ascetic practices. Uh, some people have humility with fasting in this verse. You'll read that interpretation. You might have a note on that if you have a study Bible. Some pagan religions 
combined fasting with visions. In order to receive a vision from God, you would fast this long, you would go to the temple to the deity and pray to the deity. After so many days of fasting, Paul could be tapping into something like that with this syncretistic thought that existed at the first century. Paul also says this. He says, don't be duped by false teachers who consistently and constantly talk about worship to angels, who have an unhealthy, never-ending, consumed obsession with supernatural beings, with angels. This warning, angels, along with the next visions, tells us very clearly, do not get so caught up in an unbiblical, hallmark, Hollywood version obsession with angels and visions. You don't need it. Dennis, right? Focus on Christ. That might have been your vision. That might have been an experience you had. But just because you had that vision and you had that experience doesn't mean it needs to be the standard for everybody else. It doesn't mean you should compare and, and make that your comparison to every other Christian that you know. Every two or three years, just mark my words here, every two or three years, somebody will write a book about some near-death experience that they had. You guys see the last one that just came out? Two or three years, everybody writes about some near-death experience, and I was, one day I was in this car wreck, and the next day I was walking through the tulips, and I could hear the voice of Jesus, right? And they survive, and they come back to life. They come out of the coma. And they write a story about it, and it sells millions of books. The last one that came out, a guy finally came back, and he said, you know what, I made it all up after I made all of that money on it. And I, I'm, not, I'm not denying that people have real visions from God. I'm not denying the supernatural exists. Um, one of the craziest stories I ever hold, heard, if you hear those stories that the hair on your neck stands up after you hear it. Crazy tornado ripped through more Oklahoma. Annihilated entire neighborhoods. It's happened like multiple times now. It's crazy. Story goes that uh, some boy was found after tornado, crawled out of an, an ice freezer, one of those uh, standalone freezers that you'd put in your garage or in your basement if you're in Kansas or something like that. Um, comes out of this freezer after all the debris and all these houses are annihilated. And a fireman walks up and says, says to the boy, sees him crawl out of there. He says, how did you know to jump into that freezer? And the boy says, it was the, it was the big shining man that told me to get into the freezer quickly. Do you see him? Where did he go? Right. Now this great, great vision, this great experience, and all of a sudden that becomes the standard. That becomes the measure. That becomes the comparison. I'm not denying that those things happen. They do happen. What I am saying is don't hold fast to visions, to self-discipline, to angels, to this all-consuming obsession with them, and instead hold fast to Christ. Verse 19, holding fast to the head. That word means keeping a grasp on, staying strong in Christ. And here's the reason why. Third point in your outline. Do not let anyone convince you into individualism. Here's why you hold fast to Christ. Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, and that's a, a third-class condition, if it's true, and it is, that you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
Verse 22, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. If you highlight and mark in your Bible, I would recommend that you underline, put a box around, focus on verse 23. That's where I want to draw our attention to as we close here. Verse 23. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I don't have enough time, and, and so I just want to focus more on verse 23 here as we close. What we've set up to this point is that the false teachers were trying to distract real, sincere, genuine Christians who trusted Christ and Christ alone for salvation by adding things now to their Christian life in order to be complete, in order to be fully satisfied in God. What these ideas and philosophies offered had an appearance of wisdom, is what the Apostle Paul said. And we know from Scripture, listen, spiritual warfare is true in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6, it rages daily on a normal basis. There are things that happen in the heavenly places. I've always thought to myself when I read the book of Job, what if Job would have just heard that conversation between God and Satan? before he allowed him to go through that ter terrible period of suffering, that conversation in the heavenly places, we all know those things are real. We know that angels are real. It's wise to acknowledge the truth of these things. It's unwise to be obsessed with them. It's unwise to be controlled by them or to be consumed by them. It's wise to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 purpose of godliness actually has a great benefit for you in the Christian life. It is unwise to place so much stock in your personal discipline that you move away from trusting in God and you start looking to yourself to be fulfilled. The biggest danger is in this entire passage, the biggest danger, if you cling to those things, here's what the Apostle Paul says, you will end up with a self-made religion that leads you to the ultimate killer. It leads you to pride. It leads you to a self-centered, self-made religion that will simply puff you up into being a prideful person. And pride says this, and I want you to listen really carefully. I'm going to read it from my notes. Here's what pride says to this Christian. It says this, if you love God like I love God, then you will experience God in the same way that I've experienced God. We live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hyper-emotionalism, hyper-Pentecostalism, and as a result of it, here's, here's what happens in the Christian church. There are, there are those Christians that are on the varsity. They're starting on the varsity team, and then there's other Christians that are on the JV team. And if you want to be a starting varsity player, if you're going to be the star athlete on the team, you're going to have the exact same experiences that I had. You're going to have the exact same emotional ties, visions that I've had. You're going to have this dream because this dream is going to get you to a next level in your spiritual life, and that's the same dream that I had. And then they say this, if you're really game, if you're really serious about being a Christian, you too will have all of these visions and all of these supernatural experiences. What does Paul say that this leads to? Look at the text. Just read the text. Just read it. 
Verse 23, it leads to the indulgence in the flesh. It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop your fleshly desires. It isn't about Jesus anymore. It's about you, and it's about your vision and your dream. And it's not going to help you in your fight against sin. Verse 18, what does this lead to? Verse 18, it leads you to be puffed up without reason. It's not even reasonable to measure yourself with other Christians based on these things. It's prideful because it isn't about Jesus anymore. It becomes about people all too quickly. Here's my summary statement. Do not let anyone, do not let anyone impose on you a program of spiritual development that at its heart is not Christ. Really simple. Do not let anyone impose on you a program of spiritual development that doesn't have Christ at its heart. End with a... uh, illustration that's going to make Brandon Biggs and Kirk Shue really happy this morning. We've got a, a church softball team. Do you guys know we got a church softball team? We got, man, they're amazing. They win the championship, like, how many years in a row has it been? It's a, zero? I thought you guys win it, like, every year. Don't you win a lot? A lot. They win a lot, so if, if you guys are interested, um, what's going to happen is, is we're going to give you a two-hour lesson on batting first. Uh, <laughs> Kirk's going to do that. We're going to teach you how to throw a softball. We're going to teach you how to catch. Because we got to make sure we got good athletes out there. All right? I want varsity players, not junior varsity players. I played a lot of baseball when I was a kid growing up. And over and over again as a coach, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing that you say to your players. The first key of hitting, keep your eye on the, on the ball. Keep your eye focused on the ball. Keep your eye focused on Christ. The basic principles that Paul's talking about here. Do not wander from Christ. Do not be pulled away from Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing that gives you absolutely everything. What Paul wants for Christians is an unrelenting, never-ending, steadfast focus on Jesus Christ. To know him and to grow in him. All right, and so here's my first point as we close. Number one, God's people are not qualified before the Father by what we do or by what we don't do by what we eat or by what we don't eat, by what we see or don't see, by what we feel or don't feel. We are qualified by the blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary and nothing else before God. The truth of the gospel that Paul wants us to to live by, listen, in the same way that you received Christ Jesus, Colossians 2, 6, so walk in him. Back to the truth of the gospel. Everything ultimately goes back to Christ. There's nothing that you're going to be able to do enough, strong enough, consistent enough, that's going to earn a qualification before God. Righteousness is a gift. We stand before the Father, and none of us are looking to our own life, our actions, our works, our deeds. For righteousness before the Father, all of us are looking to Jesus. Number two, do not let your experience be the standard measure for spirituality for other people. Do not let your experience, 
be the standard of spiritual measure for other people. Beware of comparing yourself and criticizing others based on your own personal experiences with God. Do not fall into the temptation to compare yourself to other Christians based on things that have happened to you. Hold your experiences with utter humility. Hold your emotional connections with God with utter humility. J.I. Packer has a a really great book. It's called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. I want to recommend it to you. And when you read that book, it's a little bit different than what you would expect. And I want to just share, it's it's a lengthy quote, so bear with me in this. Here's what he says. He says, should our interest shift from knowing the Son to knowing the Spirit? And commanded in the Bible, you will never see the command, know the Holy Spirit. You will be commanded to know Christ, to know God in the Bible. Just be very careful as you're reading these texts of Scripture because the focus can shift very easily, right? And that's what Paul is talking about is to keep us centered on Christ. So J.I. Packer says, should our interest shift from knowing the Son to knowing the Spirit, two evils would at once result. On the one hand, like the Colossian angel worshipers, we should impoverish ourselves by not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nursing it together through its joints and ligaments grows the growth that is from God, Colossians 2.19. And he says this, on the other hand, we should enmesh ourselves in a world of spurious, of spurious spiritual feelings and fantasies that are not Christ-related and do not correspond to anything that actually exists except Satan's web of deceptions and his endless perversions of truth and goodness. Packer says, Do not take one step down that road. When you do, the truth gets perverted. Spiritual life becomes more about you than about Jesus. And the ultimate killer at the root of all sin, the ultimate killer is pride. It becomes more about you than about Jesus. Colossians 2 is, is a warning, a stern warning This early church was just starting in Colossae. They needed basic principles on how to grow as Christians in their spiritual lives. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. It's Christ. Christ is enough for you. Don't shift your attention. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be obsessed with all these other things. Focus, grow, think, act, read scripture, conform to the word, transformed into the image of Christ. He is the priority. He is the focus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we just, um, we thank you that for us, uh, to us, in us, is not only the greatest power deliverance, salvation, gift, grace that we could ever receive. There's also a a person who miraculously dwells within us. That is Christ. I pray that um, as we look at our Christian lives, as we, we go from here, as we experience the Christmas season this year, we won't be distracted the way the Colossian believers were being distracted by false teachers. We won't be caught up in things that aren't Christ, 
that we won't be drawn to things that we shouldn't be drawn to. I pray that you would keep us from a prideful arrogance of comparison to other Christians. I pray that you would keep us humble. I pray that you would keep us focused on Jesus. Lord, and we will trust you with the results of that. We pray that you would do the work that we can't do for ourselves, that only you can do through the power of Christ and his spirit working within us to transform us more and more into his image on a daily basis. Lord, in the areas of our lives where we have uh, been distracted, where we've been pulled away from Jesus, help us to acknowledge those things, to confess them back to you. Help us to be solely, um, intently, strategically focused on Jesus every single day. As we have received Christ Jesus, our prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would walk with him, firmly rooted and established in the faith. God, we ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.